Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From HowStuffWorks.com, this is the Stuff of Life. I'm Julie Douglas, host of The Stuff of Life, a podcast that teases apart the tales we tell. Because when we crack open a story and look inside, we see the seeds of what make our world so maddening, so strange, and so achingly beautiful. And, at times, ridiculous. The Stuff of Life is a podcast about how we're all just getting by, learning and surviving through stories we share. Today's story is about achieving immortality. The idea that in stories we transcend death, whether it's an I-was-here graffiti scrawl or an epic-length autobiography. In this way, we humans try to build out eternity. We pass on our genes, we record our stories, and we make and collect objects as evidence of our existence. For our first look into building eternity, we'll time travel back to 1940 with historian Paul Hudson to the Crypt of Civilization, the most famous time capsule you've never heard of, which holds, among other things, these objects. One container of beer, about one quart. One plastic bird, one plastic ashtray, one beetle plastic ornament and bowl, one vanity makeup mirror. There's controversy about these things uh, that I'd never thought about. Uh, Some people didn't want Donald Duck in there because, um, well, Donald Duck is not wearing pants. Then we'll meet Marius Ursake, the co-founder of the site Eternomy, a site where you can preserve your memories, your photos, your social media footprint in an eternal avatar. Right now, the only way to download our memories is by actually writing this up. We don't have yet a cable to plug into our head and download everything. And finally, we'll talk to our crew here at How Stuff Works about what they want to be remembered for. An Instagram of the pancakes they made? Probably not. I mean, we certainly narrativize our own lives. We, we organize the events in our lives into a coherent story that we sort of model on the, the arcs of characters and the stories that we read and watch in movies. 
When I think of time capsules, I think back to grade school in Michigan. One cold spring morning when our class gathered around the school flagpole and ceremoniously lowered a container filled with lucky rabbit's foots, school portraits, and scraps of paper documenting our hopes and dreams. It seemed like a momentous occasion, like one day we would be discovered. Little did my third grade self know that I was participating in a ritual popularized by Thornwell Jacobs, the father of the modern time capsule, and the creator of the Crypt of Civilization. Jacobs wasn't just forward-thinking, but a millenarian, someone who stared deep into the future, hoping someday someone may stare back, specifically someone in the year 8113 who stumbles upon the crypt of civilization, a possibility simply because Jacobs thought this. That nothing is too beautiful to happen in life. And um, so he didn't know, but he hoped that somehow someone would open the, you know, the crypt of civilization in 8113 and really get a good idea of just what things were like. I am Paul Stephen Hudson. I am a professor of history at Georgia Perimeter College in Atlanta, and also I'm co-founder of the International Time Capsule Society. For Paul, the discovery of the crypt led to a lifelong passion for the things that people preserve. I first encountered it around 1970. I was an undergraduate at Oglethorpe University. In 1970, it was a kind of a distressed university. The, the buildings were almost sh these beautiful shells, but uh, that particular building where the crypt was, there was only uh, one story operational in the other stories and the uh, basement where the crypt is were, were sealed off. But I was exploring and um, really in a place I shouldn't have been. I'm not sure how I got there, but uh, I got to where the crypt was and it was a sealed off area. It was dark and I had a flashlight and I was just looking at things. And um, then I saw this stainless steel door with this message on it about 8113. <laughs> I really didn't quite know what it was. And there were cobwebs on the door and so forth. And I thought, well, what is this? The crypt is located on the bottom floor of the Phoebe Hearst Hall. Gone are the cobwebs. There's even a plaque with an explanation that the contents placed inside in 1940 will remain hermetically sealed until the year 8113. But still, there's little fanfare about this subterranean time capsule, and the casual visitor could easily glide by Jacob's heroic attempt to catalog civilization. He was inspired by the pyramids. Um, we have pictures of it. It's a sealed chamber. It looks the way you would imagine a pyramid chamber to look like. It's just literally cluttered with artifacts, but there's a kind of order, you know, in the, 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 the storage of them. But Dr. Jacobson, he, he, um, he was a millenarian. He, he thought in terms of thousands of years. And uh, to him, 6,000 years really wasn't that long. There were 6,000 years ago with the pyramids. Why not? 6,000 years into the future. Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. Imagine a room 20 feet long, 10 feet high, and 10 feet wide stuffed with artifacts. We're talking about painstakingly preserved microfilms of 800 works of literature, more than 640,000 pages, including the Quran, the Bible, and the Iliad not to mention musical and historical recordings and films. And then there are the objects themselves. One set Lionel model train, 
six cars, one track, one cigarette holder, one model air conditioner. Things that would represent a cross-section of daily life for someone living in 1940. Everything from dental floss and false eyelashes to shot glasses and typewriters and toasters. But the most important object inside is something called the language integrator. The idea is that 6,000 years from now, English will be obsolete, and the language integrator will help decode the contents of the crypt. You turn a, a wheel, and then it plays a, a record, and the very first item you see is apple, and then you hear the word apple. apple. And it's, it's based on a, an old... Um, cryptographic language from World War I called Basic English. It has about 5,000 words. But what Dr. Jacobs and the organizers hoped is that would be the key to the English language. And like the uh, Rosetta Stone, you know, that's what um, helped archaeologists really understand what the pyramids were all about. The problem is, you know, whoever opens this time capsule or finds it, they, they probably won't know what it's all about because we're all so complex and it's really kind of scattershot. You, you might ask yourself, if you were doing a time capsule, what, what would you put in it? Well, you might give one answer today and a different answer tomorrow. You're just sort of defining yourself and, and where you are. Unless, of course, the item is so recognizable, so valuable, that it transcends the ages. Golden Budweiser with that good taste for good times. So go ahead. The one thing that he was pretty sure of, though, and this was during the time of the Egyptians as well, is that people would be drinking beer. You know, the Egyptians were great beer drinkers, and everything in the crypt was donated, and it was the Anheuser Busch Company that uh, donated an ampule. Uh, if it is opened in 8113 AD by an archaeologist or historian or someone else, um, that bud would be for them. The fascinating thing about time capsules is that in an attempt to document our interests, they also unwittingly document our anxieties. Among recordings about engineering feats like the Panama Canal, there's a preoccupation with Adolf Hitler and the rise of fascism. And while the crypt has frozen in time many of the hallmarks of this particular era, it's hardly a true reflection of that society. In fact, the portrait of America in 1940 contains a very large gap in knowledge. There are very few contributions from African Americans, and one lone black doll becomes a stand-in for the rich multicultural heritage of the United States. But all of this may be a moot point. After all, how likely is it that when 8113 arrives, the crypt will actually be opened? He said uh, he could no more imagine that than Cro-Magnon man could comprehend the skyline of New York. So he, he really didn't, didn't know. Um, now, I do think the artifacts will be preserved. I mean, I'm just sort of guessing here. For one thing, I doubt if there will be. I hate to say it, that there will be an Atlanta or a United States. I mean, it will be, it's an archaeological site, you know, projected, you know, 6,000 years into the future. So th I think the big question is not so much if the artifacts will be preserved, but the big question is who will know to open it. Which makes you wonder why we extend ourselves into the future in the first place. There's a kind of a naive uh, 
optimism that uh, someone who does a time capsule has. I think no noble effort is in vain. That was one of uh, Dr. Jacob's favorite sayings here. You know, whether it's opened or not, uh, it does show that you really care about your fellow man and woman and, and, and somehow you want to reach out to them. Paul's been all over the world, and he's seen a lot of time capsules, but his idea of a time capsule isn't just a container stored away, but other ways that we reach into the future. A grandparent's letter, the Voyager golden records hurling out to space containing the sounds and images of life on Earth, a pregnant woman carrying a genetic code, one that can move backward and forward in time. And it's this idea the ability to move forward and backward in time that's at the heart of what some e-death companies are trying to do. As artist Anne Hamilton says, technology amplifies human presence at a distance. And the company Eternomy aims to amplify your data, your memories, thoughts, and emotions across time, creating an immortal avatar of yourself, a digital simulacrum that can exist in the past, present, and future. My name is uh, Mario Sursake, and I'm the CEO and founder of Eternity. And what we're trying to build at Eternity is a network of artificial intelligent avatars that would preserve people's thoughts, stories, and memories, ideally forever. Mary has co-founded the site Eternity for a very personal reason, one we can all relate to. My grandmother died after fighting Alzheimer's for three years, and... Her memories started fading away during those three years. But after she passed away and after we sort of like went through the whole grieving process, I realized that the only things I had left from her were like 20 pictures, more or less. 90 years of uh, joy, of sorrows, of experiences, of various things that happen in a person's life are reduced to just a couple of photos and memories that are eventually lost. Marius drew on major influences from his life, from his love of sci-fi to his experiments in technology to ask the question, what if you could preserve someone's memories using artificial intelligence, allowing people to access those memories, but also do it in a meaningful way? The biggest difference is like the ability to, first of all, like collect information about the person during their lifetime, so acting like a biographer. Because right now the problem with other websites, websites that collect your memories, is that you have to do a lot of like manual work, uploading photos and do everything by yourself or writing your biography, which usually it's a pretty big task that people always leave for tomorrow. And in this way, a constellation of data points begin to coalesce until a recognizable version of you emerges, all through your digital footprint and conversations with your avatar. Think of the ability to timeline your life, to have your avatar recall specific memories for you. Marius likens this avatar relationship to a Tamagotchi, the handheld digital pet that you interact with every day. The idea is the same. The more you interact with your avatar, the more you nurture it, and the more it begins to truly reflect you and your thoughts. In 10 years, in 20 years, or you know, for the younger generation, 40, 50 years, the amount of information that's going to be gathered on top on everything that you already post on Facebook or on email 
is going to be huge and is going to be very useful in uh, preserving as much of uh, that person's uh, consciousness or personality or thoughts as possible. Also, because I know some of you are wondering, Eternomy does not want to build a robot out of your memories and let it loose. We're not trying to create like a clone, like a very lifelike clone. We're trying to create something that offers a very easy interface to access those memories. But it's going to be very clear that that's not a copy of the person. Eternomy launched its beta site in 2014, and more than 30,000 people signed up. So... Who are they? More than half of them are millennials and uh, English-speaking. I think that, first of all, these people have a much richer digital footprint than older generations because of using so many uh, online tools. And this percentage is only going to be increasing in the future. At global level, 90% of uh, millennials already use Facebook, to give you an example. You see the picture emerging here. Eternomy appeals to people who are already creating a digital bread trail of information. And the website gives them a chance to make sense of it, contextualize it in the form of a decades-long relationship with their biographer, this version of themselves. Think of what this might do for the way that we recall our memories. We actually forget more than 95% of things that happen to us every day. And... The avatar will also help collect those kind of information and store it and later make it accessible if you want to uh, recall it. Of course, all of this is predicated on one thing, that we truly interact with our avatars, something Eternomy is still trying to finesse with psychologists. At this stage, what we've been most interested in is how to ask questions and what kind of questions we would have to ask people to engage them and make them like really interested in uh, collecting their memories. Marius gives these questions as an example of the nuance needed when you begin your relationship with your avatar. The question, why did you decide to become a doctor, is intrusive compared to what were the things that led you to choosing to become a doctor? Some harder questions would be, what are the things that you want to be remembered for? And then there are the intimate questions. Did you ever cheat on your partner? How did it feel? The thing is that even though Eternomy is meant to grant cyber immortality and preserve memories, this day-to-day journaling of a person's life is very much rooted in the present. For us, it's more a tool for the living person to be able to collect their memories. So we're more focused on writing the story of your life or and curating it from all sources and less about interfering with the grieving process. I think it's important to understand that this is not just an app. This is something that in order to be able to work as most people want will take years, uh, probably even decades, because there's a lot of technology that's still not yet out there. But instead of like waiting for that perfect moment where artificial intelligence could be at that level, which could be in five years, could be in 10 years, or could be in 20 years, when that singularity moment will be reached, we prefer to start working right now because unfortunately a lot of the memories uh, are disappearing. A lot of the things that happen to us every day we forget. A lot of people pass away and they take uh, you know, away 
all the memories and everything uh, about them. So we decided to start earlier to focus on this, but we still have like, a long, long journey. So this topic is pretty much mental catnip at How Stuff Works, the place where I work. And in the grand tradition of water cooler conversations, I put the idea of cyber immortality to some of my coworkers. And here's what they had to say about it. There's a beautiful sort of historical database angle to it, right? Like there will be history books written, for example, about things that are happening in today's society. But when someone 500 years from now, presuming we have maintained enough technology in an ongoing way that we can keep these records updated, (laughs) is like... What were like the hot topic issues of the 21st century? Like what really was the gun control debate about? Like they could if you have a database where that's searchable and you could get 500 strangers and read things that they had all written about that, you're going to get a really interesting and probably much more complete picture than if someone just writes about it later based on their own research. That's Holly Fry, a co-host of Stuff You Missed in History Class. My first thing that popped in my head when you had relayed to us that he likened it to a Tamagotchi is can you game the system to create a much better (laughs) version of yourself than you actually are? Like, could I only upload Photoshop files where I look really great? And could I only include, like, the best of me in it as, you know, if I'm the custodian of this record... Can I manipulate it in such a way that future generations would be like, man, that Holly Fry was amazing. It's the grand tradition of how we celebrate death, right? I mean, when you get up and give a eulogy for somebody, you don't make notes of all the horrible things they did and (laughs) the reasons that lots of people didn't like them. You remember the highlights of their life. Here's Joe McCormick, a co-host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So, uh, yeah, I guess in death, we try to we try to emphasize the positive in the same way that we do on our, our social media profiles. I think that this whole idea feels funny to me personally on multiple levels. That's senior editor Allison Laddermilk. For one, I mean, why am I compiling all my memories and spending my time on that when I could be out making new ones? So that's my first issue with this. But I mean, as you can guess from that statement, I'm not big on social media. Like I just I really don't tend to to use it all that much. So and this seems like a bit of a progression of that. So so that I think that makes sense for me. And then the other thing is that I mean, yeah, it's carefully curated like Facebook is. I mean, we present our happy side. We we feel the need to make a fake Instagram account because we can't share you know, like the photo of us looking like a train wreck. It's just... We can't. Well, I mean, some people don't feel like they're at liberty to do so, so they hide it and they only invite their close friends to their Instagram account. It just feels ridiculous to me. And I mean, that's just a... I think that a lot of people would perpetuate that account of themselves, just this very glossy... And it's bogus. It annoys me. It makes me mad. The conversation, as you might expect, begins to veer toward the what-ifs. I'm thinking about the movie Strange Days. Do you remember that film? Yes. Where you had the the digital. I love that movie. I have no regrets admitting how much I love that movie for a variety of reasons. But you could replay memories. Like there was an apparatus that let you relive memories that you had recorded. Angela Bassett has this beautiful moment where she says, 
memories are supposed to fade. They're designed that way for a reason. So then I wonder if you have something like this that you are working on and you can, you know, then several decades down the road, look back and see exactly the person you were in your 20s or your 30s. Will it then affect the way you progress in a way that is unnatural versus how you would have just progressed had you only had your human memories to work with? I mean, we certainly narrativize our own lives. We, we organize the events in our lives into a coherent story that we sort of model on the, the arcs of characters and the stories that we read and watch in movies and stuff. And if we were to include all events in this narrative, it wouldn't be a narrative. It wouldn't be interesting. I mean, it's only by selective memory that we construct a meaningful arc for ourselves. So, you know, well, I did this and this and this, and that's how I got to where I am today. But you're leaving out all kinds of extraneous information. I mean, are are you more concerned about telling the the literal correct cause and effect story of your life or in telling a story the way like a, a fiction writer would tell a story? I see this creating weird factions of people in the future. Like the next wave of division will be about how you maintained your avatar online and what your parameters and your ethos was around it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there will be an aesthetic that develops around it for sure. Yeah. It'll be like the truth tellers. And, yeah. and, uh, and the gloss people. And the glossers. It, it's sort of a sciences humanity split, right? This gets us into the nitty gritty of how you even begin to interact with your avatar. You know, you want to start with your avatar sort of like you would at a cocktail party. Oh, what do you do? How's it going? You don't want to go straight to, have you ever killed anyone? It's doing, it's doing the yawn stretch. What is that? Oh, in the, all the movies from the 50s that you go to the drive-in and the guy yawns and stretches and puts his arm around the girl. Yes. The surreptitious. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. It's in it's just, all the it's old just movies. I, I think none of us had framed it in a dating sort of way prior to that. So there was a little bit of a, I don't want to date myself. Maybe some people do. I'm not judging. But, you know, it's, that's all. But, yeah, it's a kind of trust issue like that. So maybe if it bakes me some cookies, I uh, will tell it more information. I would just talk to it. Who's the Tamagotchi at that point? Right? I would bore it to death. It would be like, <laughs> oh, this story again, please. <laughs> Rejected by my avatar. Yeah, so some of the data trails you create could be mundane, but some of it could be, well, troubling. Well, you also get into the realm of, like, legal issues. Like, could they be petitioned by a court or a, another legal entity to look at somebody's stuff? There's which I'm sure they've thought about. I mean, if they're putting together a company around it, they probably have a legal team who has drawn up some documents around this. But that's just a whole other thing to consider. What if I do something terrible in the future and then somebody wants to look <laughs> look at my history and try to figure out where it all went wrong? Well, and then I just have my pale blue dot moment. None of this matters anyway. We're a spec. You know, we're just creating so much data. <laughs> Now, I did start actually, just while you were talking, have some, some breakthroughs here. It could provide a scientific benefit because maybe once we have tons and tons of data, we could use some machine analysis to say, hey, is there any correlation between people who make certain types of posts and then people who die prematurely of certain diseases? Oh, what do you know? People who take lots of selfies are more likely to, uh, I don't know, have their heads explode spontaneously on their 50th birthday. 
I mean, that would be useful knowledge that you could use for a, for a real purpose to achieve something, I guess. Oh, but I automatically see it becoming horrifying and a business driver. And then I'm like, ooh, ick, 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 ick. To be clear, Eternomy isn't interested in running ads against your emotions at all. Still, the idea gets the group to thinking about the ability to do it based on our experience with social media and advertising. Or maybe you're looking at pictures of your ex-partner who unceremoniously dumped you and you start to get a little misty-eyed and up comes the haagen ad and you're like, I'm all over that. Or the obvious would just be one weird trick to stay young forever. Oh, yeah. Come on, eat, guys. Eat this one spiky fruit and you will never die. <laughs> We've all had that dark moment where we've probably clicked on something similar to that, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. I mean, ultimately, this brings me to a more general question, which is how do we want to be remembered and why do we want to be remembered? I mean, what what is the inherent motivation to have people remember you in a certain way after you die? It's a fair question. For some people, it could be that you get to control your story. You get to outline your life and make sense of it. For others, it could be a way to vanquish death. If there's still some scrap of evidence of your existence, are you really completely absent? That being said, Eternomy is such a fascinating tool and concept simply because beyond capturing our digital movements and our active memories, it captures our imaginations. After all, we're storytellers, and we can't quite figure out how this one is going to end. Thank you to Mary Sersaki at Eternomy for showing us how each of us has a hero's journey, a narrative to explain the impossible slash possible paradox of our existence. Thanks to Paul Hudson for cracking open the crypt and letting us peer inside. And thanks to How Stuff Works staff members Allison Laddermilk, Joe McCormick, and Holly Fry. In our next episode, a supplement to this one, we'll look at our relationship with objects, the ones we include in time capsules and the ones that are shoved away in a storage unit. We need a certain amount of community and human interaction. But what happens a lot of times with individuals is they've been hurt so many times or have had trauma with people that people become unsafe to them, so they turn to objects instead. The Stuff of Life is written and co-produced by me, Julie Douglas. Original music composition is by co-producer Noel Brown. And editorial oversight is provided by head of production, Jerry Rowland. You can send your thoughts to us at thestuffoflife at howstuffworks.com. And you can visit our Facebook page where we'll post some outtakes from our How Stuff Works roundtable, including what imitations we'd like to be remembered for. I'm very confused about this immortality issue. (laughs) I find it upsetting, but I love my children and I want them to live forever.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below-market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.